some of the members of the pastoral staff had asked that going into the Advent season that I'd pause and perhaps take a subject that doesn't get often addressed enough in Christian circles since the subject of spiritual depression. Some people struggle during the course of October in particular with some of the spiritual dynamics attached to that particular time of year. In November and December and early January, there are the relational components of families, extended families, likes coming together. And there are the seasonal issues as well. Uh, the darker days of January and February, I'm absolutely convinced that it's going to be 7 degrees and sunny in January, but the staff thinks otherwise. But I'd like you to join with me this morning as we're turning in our Bibles to a passage of Scripture that was penned by a man who was struggling. And he was struggling with what I'm going to call spiritual depression. And these Psalms are meant to be read together. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. I want to teach in a way that will not only minister to hearts, but also to teach in a way where if you find in your circle of relationships people who are struggling in the area that we're about to address, that you're going to have something to share with them that will be able to minister to their needs, to address the issues at hand in their lives. Now you're going to notice that this begins in the Psalms with what is known as a book two. You also notice that there's a superscription at the top of Psalm 42. It's described as a maskil. And you ask, well, Gary, what is a maskil? Well, it has to do with the idea of something designed by God to impart wisdom for skillful living. Something designed by God to impart wisdom for skillful living. So evidently, God had in mind the need to design something to help people who were struggling in life with what we're going to call the downcast soul syndrome and design something along the lines of wisdom for skillful living. And this will be communicated through, according to the superscription, the sons of Korah. And you ask now, Gary, who are the sons of Korah? The sons of Korah were gatekeepers of the tabernacle, eventually the temple. They were musicians. And evidently, this particular psalm, or psalms, was penned by somebody very close to David as David was having to flee from Absalom when Absalom usurped David's authority and sought to become king. So now, here is somebody who's feeling dislocated by life, removed from the things that matter most, longing for what you and I might call the good old days. And this person is... this person's down. And we want to ask ourselves, what can we do to help this person who has what I'm going to call this morning the downcast soul. This psalm, or actually these two psalms, are meant to be read together because you'll notice there is no superscription above Psalm 43. 
Furthermore, there is a refrain that is repeated three times, which tells us that this song was meant to be understood in three parts. There are three refrains and three stanzas associated. I'm simply going to read the first stanza to help us get a sense of the flow of the music that unfolds here for us. So we're told this is for the director of music, a maskil of the sons of Korah. He writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? Now these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And we're going to notice that that phrase in verse 5 will be repeated again in verse 11, and in Psalm 43 in verse 5. And what you and I are going to find is that this is a psalmist who is moving three steps forward, two steps back and handling his spiritually depressed state. But he is slowly but surely climbing this mountain, and he makes his way up, he loses his footing, climbs back up further, loses his footing, and we're going to track his journey together as we now look to God in prayer. And Father, I want to pray this morning for somebody who comes with the downcast soul. I'm asking that your words speak to that heart and meet that special person right now here at their point of need. We're also praying for those, Father, who are in our circle of friendships, our circle of relationships, and they are also experiencing what this psalmist has experienced, and they are desperately looking for a way out. So we're asking now that you guide us, that you direct us, and that you help us to be able to apply your truth to our lives. And we thank you again, Father, for meeting us at our point of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Her name was Margarita Higgins, and she was a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer during the time of the Korean War. And she was known for incredibly perceptive stories about the experiences of men out on the battlefield of life. There's one occasion where she was writing about being with the 5th Company of Marines. It's early evening, and the company had stopped the march to have their evening meal, and the men were experiencing what she noted as bone-deep fatigue. Anxiety, fear, and death. 
One huge Marine was leaning back against a truck and he was eating his cold meal with a tin can and he'd He'd been in the field for a long period of time, and his clothes were stiff with dirt and cold. Bearded face, encrusted with mud, expressionless because of the immense fatigue that he was experiencing. She made her way through a small group of reporters toward him and made this strange yet perhaps um, insensitive question. If I were God and could grant you anything you wished, what would you want most? The Marine stood motionless for a few moments and then he looked at the reporter and said, Just give me hope that there's a tomorrow. Hope seems to be the overarching idea in the mind of this psalmist. In verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within thee? Put your hope in God. Verse 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. In chapter in Psalm 43, verse 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. So now, with that as our guide, what I want to do, looking at these three stanzas, we're going to first of all notice some initial directives that God gives us for handling the downcast soul. And we're going to end by dealing with some final perspectives for the downcast soul, always utilizing hope and using that as the means to minister to us at our point of need. Now he begins in verse 1 of Psalm 42 with these words, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Let's pause there. Let's look at our first directive. Help us here. Number one. We should put our hope in God as we evaluate both causes and symptoms. And by this I mean we've got to evaluate the causes for the downcast soul and the symptoms of the downcast soul. So we're going to be spiritual physicians now and begin to ask some very tough questions. What are the causes for the downcast soul that are described here in these verses? Let's start with the causes before we get to the symptoms. And notice at first that the causes include spiritual isolation. 
as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. He writes, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? It's as if he has been spiritually isolated from God. He asks the question, where, when, that sort of thing. Now, he is in the... He's in a region where he most likely is observing deer. It must be November and deer hunting in Wisconsin or something other here. And this deer is thirsty. What's fascinating to me is that in that region of the world, the desert rat will, at its time of thirst, follow the deer. Because the deer seem to have a sense of where to go for the water. And other animals will follow suit. What strikes us here is that this deer has not found water. This deer is isolated. It's dehydrated. Now, there is a sense where with the downcast soul, the downcast soul is experiencing what I might call a form of spiritual dehydration. This is a very liquid sum. Again and again and again, H2O is referenced in one way, shape, or form. Now, what strikes us here is that he is thirsting. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My soul thirsts. Now, I would argue that you and I meet daily people who are thirsting. And the reason they become downcast and remain so is because they are thirsting for something or someone other than God. Your starting point in the whole area of thirst will determine your ending point as to whether or not your thirst will be satisfied. This man is not saying, I am thirsting for wealth. This man is not saying, I am thirsting for fame. This man is not saying, I am thirsting for upward mobility. This man is not saying, I am thirsting for being acclaimed among my colleagues in the workplace. Show me what you thirst for, and I'll show you the degree in which you're able to manage the downcast soul. Show me your starting point, and I'll show you the progression towards the ending point. God has allowed within the sinful world the element of the thirsty soul. The question is, what means will we use to hydrate that soul? Interestingly, this psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God. He will not allow for substitutes. It happened during World War II. During the North African campaign, lo and behold, what surprised the Allied forces is there were a number of German officers who came out of the desert unexpectedly with their hands held high and their tongues hanging out. Only later did the Allied forces understand the reason behind this phenomenon. Attempting to meet their needs in the driest of conditions in North Africa, these officers were given water to drink, 
but the water is from the Mediterranean Sea. Salt water only increases your thirst. What they thought would satisfy their thirst only magnified their thirst. Outwardly, somebody may look like they've got it together. Inwardly, they are finding that the externals are not meeting their need for spiritual hydration of the soul because they've opted to drink from some well which is far different than the living water which God provides. And so here we find the psalmist who knows where to go for spiritual hydration. My soul thirsts for God. Not for wealth, not for fame, not for quality of life experiences. Well, all those things are wonderful in and of themselves. He's got his starting point right. My soul thirsts for God. And then to define this all the more, he goes on to say, for the, for the living God. You've got to have a very clear understanding of who God is in order to work out of spiritual despondency. A wrong view of God will lead to a wrong view of self. And a wrong view of God will lead to a wrong view of life. This man thirsts for God, for the living God. I always have loved the story of when Martin Luther, when he was incredibly discouraged, was reminded of this by his wife Catherine. He was down. He was wearied. And she saw him as unresponsive to any word of encouragement. So one morning she decided she would dress in black mourning clothes, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Gave no reason why. Luther blurted out, Catherine, why have you dressed in mourning black? Someone's died, Martin, she said. Died? Have you heard of anyone dying lately? Who died? Martin, it seems that God must have died. And we're told he was brought back to his senses. What was she doing? She understood that good theology makes for good psychology. She brought him back to the idea of the living God. And this is really what he was thirsting for. Now you and I have to ponder and pause day in, day out, what is it that we are truly thirsting for in life? Because if God is not central to our focus, somewhere along the way we are going to enter into an extended downcast soul experience. And we're going to have a hard time finding our way out until we get back to the living God as our focus. Now we've got to bear in mind that we are integrated beings, body, soul, and spirit. And sometimes godly people go through the downcast soul syndrome. And we can't over-spiritualize, nor can we under-spiritualize. 
Sometimes there are spiritual symptoms of physical causes. The great Spurgeon, a pastor, went through an extremely long period of time of depression until he found out that he'd been suffering from gout. But the symptoms were spiritual, and the way in which he wrestled with his relationship with God out loud before his wife and others. The wise person understands that though there may be spiritual symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are spiritual causes. They may be physical causes, but they are manifesting themselves in spiritual symptoms. So you have to make quality distinctions and careful evaluation of what's going on in this person's life. Now, what we want to do then is to understand that everything comes under the Lordship of Christ Jesus, including your medical evaluation. We are integrated body, soul, spirit beings designed by God to incorporate the maskil, the wisdom for skillful living. So now, we've made certain that our theology shapes our psychology. My soul, Greek word, though this is Hebrew, would be sukos. Psychology is the study of the soul which would probably shock a few psychologists around the world. So we want a good theology to shape a good psychology because theos, God, shapes the sukkah, soul. Theology shapes psychology, not vice versa. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Question. Where can I go and meet with God? There's spiritual isolation here. Uh, but there's a second cause, because the cause also includes social isolation. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? That's his diet, tears, food day and night. Now, do you sense the liquid imagery here? He's just talked about the deer panting for the water. And while there is no water for the soul, yet there is water dripping down his cheeks. There is external hydration, but there's no internal hydration happening. Do you see the contrast here? The irony here. He's finding, much like Elijah found, that he has overextended himself, output has exceeded input, there's no spiritual equilibrium in his life, and nobody to say, you know, you're taxed. And you're so taxed you don't even realize it. Let's get our focus right. Let's get back to first things first, first principles. But he says, my tears have been my food day and night. That's his diet. While men say to me all day long, where's your God? And in essence, they're, what they're saying is, you must not be very spiritual. 
You must not have a quality relationship with God because you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. Which is in essence what people were saying, so to speak, to Jesus in Matthew 27, when verse 42, mocking took place, he saved others. They said he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. Oh, believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Do you almost feel the sense of mocking here? The spiritual isolation, the social isolation. There is physical proximity, but there isn't spiritual proximity among the people he is with as they pose this question. You ever been in a crowd? and found that it is possible to be in the crowd and be lonely without being alone. That's the psalmist. That's the psalmist. They're even questioning his, his relationship to God at this point. Causes include spiritual isolation, verses 1 and 2. Social isolation, though he's in the crowd, verse 3. And then thirdly, physical isolation in verse 4. Notice that he says, these things I remember. As I pour out my soul, there is the water imagery again. Now he's pouring out what he doesn't have. His soul is thirsty and yet he's pouring out rather than taking in. Do you see the imagery at work? Is that you? The imbalance here? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. I remember the good old days. What's happened? He's been displaced. He's no longer doing what he used to do. He's no longer where he used to live. He's displaced geographically. He's even displaced positionally. He no longer has his role. And he's hurting. This is a musician who's penning these thoughts. And he's got obviously a very sensitive spirit about him. Came across this poem. Spring is past. Summer is gone, winter is here, and my song, my song that I was meant to sing is still unsung. And I have spent my days stringing and unstringing my instrument. He remembers how he would string his instrument and lift it up to play. But now he unstrings it because there's nobody for him to play the music for. He's alone. And he's experiencing these forms of isolation. You ever been there? You ever felt displaced? The divorced person feels displaced in relationship. The 
person who's moved from one setting to another without wanting to do so has been displaced geographically. A friendship that was once strong is now weak and you feel displaced as you're looking for a new relationship. A position you once had, maybe in a congregation or maybe in a business or wherever, well, there are others now that are stepping forward and you feel more out on the periphery. you ever feel this? Marginalized? So the causes here include spiritual isolation, social isolation, and physical isolation, verses 1 through 4. Now, we ask ourselves the question, then, what are the symptoms for the downcast soul? Here's some. Spell them out for us real fast. Crying, verse 3. My tears have been my food. Fatigue, verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Disturbance, in other words, a very agitated spirit because of the isolation of spiritual, social, and physical realms. There's an agitated spirit about the individual. Maybe that's you. Overwhelmed. He again uses water imagery in verse 7. Deep cause to deepen the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Feelings of just being overwhelmed by life. Feelings of rejection. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Like Jesus on that cross. You might recall. And so now, what we have to do is to link symptom with cause and understand that sometimes there are spiritual symptoms hiding physical causes. Sometimes there are physical symptoms hiding spiritual causes. You have to be very discerning to be able to make these forms of distinction. Sometimes there are emotional symptoms of spiritual causes. Sometimes there are spiritual symptoms of emotional causes. I like to know the genetics of the individual. Tell me about family history. Is there depression in the generations? We want to know about social effect. We want to know about family dynamics. Is this genetically based, generationally produced? Is this biology? Or is this an issue of theology? We need to make these distinctions. Not over-spiritualize, not under-spiritualize, but to understand that we are integrated beings, body, soul, and spirit, everything under the Lordship of Christ Jesus. We put all that together. We think all these things through. Causes, symptoms. Joseph Bailey, great, great writer, penned these thoughts. I'm alone, Lord, alone, a thousand miles from home. There's no one here who knows my name, except the clerk, and he spelled it wrong. No one to eat dinner with, laugh at my jokes, listen to my gripes. Be happy with me, what happened today, and say, that's great. 
no one cares in this hotel. There's just this lousy bed and slush in the street outside between the buildings, and I feel sorry for myself. And I have plenty of reason to. Maybe I ought to say I'm on top of it. Praise the Lord, things are great. But they're not. Tonight, it's all gray slush. But I'm still convinced it's going to be 70 degrees in January, you know. So we evaluate cause, we evaluate symptom, but we have to understand that sometimes there's a connection, sometimes there's a disconnection between cause and symptom. Sometimes there's a masquerading of the causes through symptoms and so forth. And we want to minister the truth. So he poses the question, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And now he inches into Psalm 2, or rather the second stanza of Psalm 42, and gives us what I will call the second initial directive. It's this. We should put our hope in God as we... Examine life's experiences and God's nature. Now here's what's interesting to you and me as we've read in verse 5. He challenges himself, put your hope in God. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Yes. Three steps forward. But then in the next stanza he begins, my soul is downcast within me. Two steps back. It's as if this poet is making his way up Mount Everest and now once again he's lost his footing. You feel the tensions here? Is he going to make it? Sometimes you ask, am I going to make it? I feel like I'm climbing this endless mountain of life. Notice the life experiences here in verses 6 and 7. There's two of them. First is what I will call social relocation. He's in a different land. My soul's downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. But now notice carefully, he says, therefore I will remember you. He's saying, my soul's downcast, bad news, yet I will remember you, good news. And I draw a line from the I will remember you statement here back up to verse 4 where it says these things I remember. The these things I remember get him down. However, the phrase I will remember you gets him back up. The question is, what will be the focal point of his memory? The these things or the you? The living God or the deadening experiences of life? Notice the tension. My soul is downcast, therefore I'll remember you. Doesn't matter where. It could be rough at work. It could be rough at the home. It could be rough in relationships. For him, he's in a place he never thought he'd be in. Maybe that's where you're at. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Not only do I see social relocation in verse 6, 
I see nature's reminders in verse 7, another of life's experiences. Deep calls to deep, and the roar of waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. He's liquid again on us, isn't he? He feels overwhelmed. Now what you and I have to bear in mind is that life's experiences are changeable, not changeless. And to help us through these times, we're going to have to be able to distinguish what is changeable and what is changeless in this world. Sometime in your life, you're going to have to read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you have children, make sure you read it to them. Grandchildren, make sure you get it for them for Christmas. No matter where you are in life, make sure you process it. It was written from a prison by a man who had been living for Jesus. And it tracks the hero Christian on his journey from what was known as the city of destruction to what's called in the book the Celestial City. It's written in Old English. Work with me. Along the way, Christian, the hero of the book, and his companion approached, quote, a very miry sloth that was in the midst of the plain. And they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the bog, the sloth, was despond. We get despondency from that. And here they wallowed for a time in dirt. Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. His traveling companion manages to get out. Does he help Christian? No. Runs home instead. Ever have that happen to you? Christian's left alone to struggle in the bog until someone named Help, who in the book is the Holy Spirit, pulls him out from the pit, sets him on solid ground. Now Christian has the why question running in his mind. Why has this dangerous plot of land not been mended so that poor travelers might go on in life with more security, he asks. Do you know what help says in response? This miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. It is only meant to be traveled through. We would love in life to travel around what Bunyan called miry sloth. But then we see Jesus, who with the joy set before him, and he endured the cross, despised the shame. It was meant to be traveled through not around. Life's experiences can be wasted or they can be invested. This psalmist does not waste the experiences of life. This psalmist invests his experiences in life for us to reap the benefits from. 
This psalmist understands that life's experiences, the social relocation and nature's reminders, they're the changeables of life. But he helps us to understand the changeless of life, God's nature. And I want you to notice God's nature here. In verse 8 he says, By day the Lord directs his love. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. First time that name is used for God in this psalm. Up until now he is Elohim, the general name, the generic name for God, meaning God creator. But now here you find the personal name for God, the relational name for God. And he adds, the Lord Yahweh directs his love. Hebrew word hesed, it has to do with the faithful covenantal love of God. God's nature, you see the love of God here in verse 8. And you see the power of God here in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And back again, you see the tension.